HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Today's program has been brought to you by Route 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. For more information, visit www.rt11.com. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Josh Green, publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. 
Josh is returning for his second appearance. I invited him back because we're going to talk about 2017, the year in wine, and I couldn't think of anybody better. We're going to taste a bunch of wines Josh brought in, probably in lieu of our weekly wine sip at the end of the show. I asked Josh to select a few wines that were significant representing the year, and I think he brought in six cases of wine or whatever. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Josh Green has been at the helm of Wine and Spirits Magazine as publisher and editor for over three decades. Wine and Spirits Magazine is read by consumers and wine professionals alike for their extensive coverage of all things wine. And they taste about 15,000 wines a year and review most of them. The magazine has received five James Beard Awards for excellence in wine writings. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Hey, Sam. It's great to be back. Um, I'm glad you were able to come in, and I want you to help me look back at 2017 as it refers to wine. It's been a crazy year. It's been a crazy year, and I think I'm going to start with kind of a crazy question that you wouldn't ask every year. And what I want to know from you is how have and how will the fires that have occurred and are occurring in northern, central California, Chile, Portugal, Italy, what effect is that going to have on wine? There are a lot of effects, very few of them direct. Um, The most direct effect is if you've got grapes hanging on your vines still when the fires hit, you can get smoke taint in your wine. Um, In the case of Northern California, 90% of the the vines were harvested, so it's really just a small percentage of the grapes that were still out, and whether those are susceptible to smoke taint is still an open question. It's something that people don't know until the wines start to ferment because it's something that comes out through fermentation. Um, In terms of other aspects of the industry and and the, the domino effect that these fires can have, they've been, in California, they've been devastating. I mean, just seriously apocalyptic. Wow. I, I drove a month after the fire, the Tubbs fire. I mean, we did we did our big Top 100 event um, in, San Francisco. in San Francisco while the fires were still burning. Wow. So there were people who had been evacuated who were who at from wineries who were there pouring at the event right. it was spooky um and we had to do it all inside because the smoke outside the fire marshal wouldn't let us be outside because of health reasons so even in san francisco the smoke was so intense and the fires were nowhere near san francisco wow um going back a month later i drove the opposite way of the fire that came, the Tubbs fire that came up over from Calistoga into Santa Rosa. I came, I drove up 101, started in Santa Rosa and drove across the hills to visit a friend, um, Jerry Sepps at Storybook, who had spent- Been there a long time. He'd been there a long time. He bought his place about five or six years after a major fire had burned out the winery in the 60s. And this is the first fire, major fire since then and he was up for three days fighting the fire around his place. Wow! And his, you know, his vineyard looks beautiful. His, you know, vineyards are fire breaks, so they, in in most cases, they were untouched. There was this strange, kind of ironic 
thing that happened where if people had been dry farming and had a lot of um, grasses and things on their on their vineyard floor, fuel. It was fuel. So people who were farming very sustainably were in more danger than people who weren't. Right. But um, Jer- no, Jerry had no problem at his vineyard, but his he had a shed with a lot of um, he had a tank of um, of diesel outside and a tank of gas and he had all his fertilizer inside and he also had a storage area a refrigerated storage area with all of his old wines and his wines aged so beautifully he lost that he lost all of that so he was up saving his daughter's house further up the property the fire switch direction came in and hit that building directly right basically right in the middle of the vineyard Right on the on the edge of the of the middle of the vineyard, and it blew up. Jesus. So the only thing that didn't blow up, blow up were, the, were the tanks because that one wall stood. But um, he was lucky; he was able to save his winery and caves. His vineyard was okay. His houses were okay. His house and his daughter's house. So he did okay. Um, but a lot of other people, their houses wiped out. A lot of people killed. Forty-four people killed. And I don't know the um, the stats are sort of. Mind-boggling: 245,000 acres on the North Coast burned, and 257,000 acres so far on the South Coast. Wow! So far, Jesus. and those fires are not in any way contained. Now, what about? I don't think they get the press in the states that California got, but I know there were fires in Chile, Portugal, and Italy. Um, similar effects. I would guess. They're different in different places, and it depends on population centers and whether they've hit population right. centers. Um, what was devastating about the Tubbs fire was that it hit Santa Rosa. Uh, 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 a residential took out, neighborhood. Yeah, took out almost a, the north third of the city. Right. Um, and in Portugal, what was devastating about the fire was that it hit an area that people couldn't get out of readily. There was you know, only a small road out. And there was a line of cars going out, and, and it just was it was impossible for people to get out. The, so the Portuguese fire was that in or near a wine region, the way the Northern California, or there was partially some everything, areas with basically everything in Portugal. Portugal. Okay, <laughs> all right. So but it wasn't near any. Um, no, it wasn't near any major. It wasn't in the Napa of Portugal no, type thing. No, it wasn't but it had Euro, a devastating yeah. effect. Mm-hmm. Lives were lost yeah. and all of that. And, and I think that, you know, it's, um, it's a real crisis for agriculture as well as for just human settlement to figure out how do we deal with people don't want these controlled burns. They don't want animals in the, in the forest that are going to be eating the stuff that's going to that's prevent it from burning. Right. I mean, if we had a lot of goats up in the forest in California eating all of the shrubbery, it would resolve a lot of the problems. Less. If the, the Native Americans did controlled burns in California. Um, but we haven't had a major fire, I think, in 70 years in, in the Ventura area. Right. So there's just all this fuel, and it's just um, it's yeah. devastating. Well, there are a lot of good organizations um, helping people. Yeah. We've had a few people on and call in. Uh, that have done fundraisers, and that continues to happen. So I guess 
one of the best ways to help people is to patronize their wines in the region. Buy Napa Sonoma wines. It it will help to do that. It, it helps to go there and actually visit them. <coughs> right, tourism um, because they're they're so reliant on tourism, and a lot of people were scared away by the fires. Right, and most of the main wine area is not touched by it. Right, it's the outlying areas that were touched by it. Right. So um, the other thing, the other big problem is housing. Because there was a housing shortage before That's the fires. That's the real aftermath problem. Yeah. The people that work in the area, support, you know, the industry are literally on their ass. Yeah. And a lot of the people who would otherwise go to the government for help or go to somebody for assistance are not likely to do that at the, in the current political environment. Right. So it's a, it's a big problem for the wineries right now to figure out how to deal with their staffing issues. I think typically... You know, things have died down in the north, but the real problems emerge now, and that's why don't forget the people there. You know, yeah. support the wine, support tourism, and all that. All right, thank you for telling us a little about that. The Storybrooks story is, you know, amazing. Felt like we were right there. Um, let's talk about the year. I think the most obvious thing to me, and what I'm curious about is wines and wine regions um, in this past year that really emerged um, in your view, your professional view, <laughs> that's why you're here, um, and are likely to stay around and thrive. And I know you travel and spend time in different regions. So I kind of throw the mic to you and freestyle here, mm -hmm. and let's talk about you know wines that really you know, made a play in this past year. Sure. Um, well, we have two wines here from the Douro in Portugal. All right, so let's and, start with Portugal. Yeah, and I think that it's worth starting with Portugal because that region has really been catching fire. I mean, the, that region, that country has been catching fire, especially Vigna Verde. Um, which is a white wine. Which is a white wine. This is a deep red wine, which is right next door to Vigna Verde. But this is inland, and it's in a schist canyon that... This Schist Canyon goes in through Portugal, then goes underground through Spain and comes back out in Priorat. Wow. So it's the same strip of schist, it's just underground through the whole plain in Spain. And in Portugal, the Douro River comes through, cut this very deep, steep canyon, and all of the, all the canyon walls are, are um, terraced with stone terraces going up and vines on the terraces. It's very tough to farm. I don't know how people make a living because the, they don't sell their wines for very much money. Some of the wines that we're tasting t tonight sell for good money. So let's, um, let's tell me the first wine. Yeah, I brought these two wines because this is, um, this is sort of a transition moment at, for this particular guy who is probably the guru of the Douro region in Portugal. Now, is the, the Douro is probably the most recognizable and famous wine region in Portugal? It is because it was the first region to ever be delimited as a, you know, as an, AO, as an right. appellation in the world, basically, for wine. And um, it was a place that was providing port, which was a, at one time a wine like the ones we're about to taste, and then it was fortified. Right. And then there was a battle between whether people were going to make it sweet or dry. We're going to try two dry wines. Okay. This guy, João Nicolau Almeida, 
Um, so slow down. I, I'll post everything on our social media. Mm-hmm. But what's the name of the wine? Okay, so I haven't gotten to the name of the wine yet, okay. actually. All right. Um, but you'd... the same guy made both these two wines. Okay. The first wine is Ramos Pinto, R-A-M-O-S, Pinto, like the car. P-I-N-T-O. Yep. And it's um, a, 19, a 2015 Duas Quintas Reserva. So it means, du, Duas, Quinta mean, Duas Quintas means two farms, and Reserva means that it's their better wine. Right. Um, so the his grape? Fa- his, the grape is Triga Nacional. Um, it's, I think he's got Triga Francesa in it. Triga, T-O-U-R-I-G-A? Yeah, Triga Nacional is sort of the um, front the headline grape for, for Douro. It's right. not necessarily... Douro, what's great about Douro are the vineyards that have a huge mix of grapes in them. They have 30 or 40 grapes all intermixed, and they all all the vines work together and make a really 30, interesting 40 blend. varieties? Yep. Jesus. Um, so what Joao did, and it's interesting that you ask what are the grapes in it, because what Joao did was he did a study back in the 70s he went to Bordeaux to to learn about wine. He was one of the first guys in Bo- in Portugal to do that. Um, came back, did a study of all the different individual grapes in the Douro to come up with for the government what are the best grapes to plant. So he and his family planted what he considered the ten best grapes at this vineyard Evermora, way up in the western reaches of the Douro, and that's at, the, at a low altitude where it's really hot. He also planted grapes at a very high altitude where it's cooler, and he blends the two together. He learned this from his father. So this is a blend of two farms, two estate-grown Different climates. Different climates in the same region. Interesting. Um, And that's more important probably than the grapes, but the grapes would be Triga Nacional, Triga Francesa, um, Tintura Riche, which is the same as Tempranillo in Spain. Um, He's probably got Tinta Cao in this, um, which, you know, they're, they're all sorts of weird grapes that no one in the States has ever heard of. Right. Um, but this is the last wine he made before he retired from, he ran this company for the years. The 2015? The 2015, yeah. So it's kind of a landmark wine. Yeah. So it's very deep purple. It's deep purple and it tastes sort of purple. It I tastes think purple that, yeah. and I, I'm not saying this because it's Portuguese, or what, but there is a little portish on the nose, port. You well, know that deep. It's from the place that grows pork. Yeah, but so it, the it's, same it's thing, definitely on the yeah. nose, more toned down. So normally, if you say it's it's porty, it means that it's high alcohol. This would be port-like because it's the same grapes as port. Medium mouth same, feel. Yeah, that that port attack, but not as you know fortified, rich, mm-hmm. and all of that. And one of the reasons that it tastes different from wines that you would find in Spain or France or whatever is that these grapes that are still grown here are left over from when when the Ice Age hit Europe, they found that there are two places, everyone thinks that all the grapes that survived were from Georgia, from right. Eastern Europe. There was one little pocket in Iberia that survived with vinifera grapes, and that was the very south of Portugal and, and the corner of Spain. Ah. So all these grapes that you have in, in wines like this are completely different from what you get in other parts of, of Europe. And that's why they taste it different. That's why they have that purple kind of flavor that you get in this wine. All right. So the dad made this wine. It's his last vintage. Mm-hmm. And then as you said, we have a second wine. As you said, in the family, they made this wine. Yep. And what is this? So 
Um, I had ideas that I was going to buy some land in the Douro right. at one point around 2000. And Joao took me to a place that he was planting grapes. He was planning on planting grapes. He took me to this place and said, I bought this place because this is where you should buy land. <laughs> and it was completely barren. You know, there had never been grapes planted there before. There were little tiny huts that were probably 20,000 years old, little rock, little stone huts wow. on, on the sides of, the, of this cliff. Um, a, a ridge at the top that was all schist, you know, just rock at the top, looking down steep, way, way down to the river, all steep, steep, just cuts down to the river. Um, so in 2003, he started planting it with his sons. He's got two sons that are both in the wine industry, Mateus and, jo and Joao. And they did it all dynamically. You go there now, it's, you, I was there in spring last year, and it was more flowers per square inch than I've seen anywhere in the world, Lush. all around, all around the vineyard. So, you know, normally you go to vineyards and they're, the, you, they're focused on the vines and everything's perfectly pruned and cleaned and right. you don't see anything growing around the vines. This is everything growing around the vines. The vines are just one of the plants. Nice. And so they make this in stone lagars, which is the traditional way of making port as well as right. Doro table wine. They tread it with their feet. They age it in, in really big casks, 600 liter casks. So a regular French barrel is like 320, 225 liters. Right. So it's almost three times the size of a regular right. French barrel, um, a barrique. And um, so it's got, it's, it's a very traditionally made wine. And so this is maybe the fourth vintage, I think, that they've released a wine from this vineyard. And I think it's probably the best one yet. So deep color, different nose, not as porty. Not um, as porty. It smells like to me. It smells like the stone and the and the flowers it, at the at the vineyard. It, you know, I hate to use the word minerality, but mm -hmm. there's that stone. You it know, smells like stone dust. Yeah, yeah. and medium mouthfeel. Give me a descriptor for taste. When I tasted this blind, I described it as blueberry honey. Yes. Um. Yes, because it has it's got, that dark blue fruit. It's got dark blue fruit. A little fruit, sweetness. A little sweetness. But not over. But it's not sweet. There's not, so much right. savory stuff yeah, going on Sweet in your is palate. not a fair word to use. But I often think about bee pollen or honey when I taste a wine like this because it's got a that, touch of, it's it's like flowers that have been compressed into a liquid. The complexity of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's, those are two wines from Portugal. I think um, those are interesting wines. I don't think it. Those are interesting wines. Um, I know you are a big fan of Portuguese wines, and I think we've shown here these are some interesting, well-made wines. Mm -hmm. um, these are reasonably priced wines. These are not, you know, cheap you can wines. Get, yeah, well, you can get the 15 Duas Quintas regular bottling for $15. And That's a good value. It's a great value. For that wine. Yeah. Well, no, this is this is the special wine, so this is okay. 40 but it, and then this is, and then the the Montecisto is eighty. Okay. So it, you know, so they would go so up. This in price, is top but, of the line, yeah. but within that. But the the regular fifteen Duas Quintas is a brilliant wine. Yes. For fifteen dollars. All right. So let's keep moving. Mm -hmm. um, I want to at least cover a couple other wines and regions. Uh, you recently spent time in Australia. In Australia. Yeah. And when people think of Australia, they think of Shiraz, Syrah based mm -hmm. wines. That's not what you came out of there, which excites me 
Well, I went for one reason. I also brought a wine for another reason. I went for um, the 50th anniversary of Margaret River as a wine appellation. And so got to now, taste a lot a of... just a little history. 50 years Margaret River, that mm-hmm. makes it one of the old established Australian wine... No, one not, of the newest. It is one of the newest. One of the newest, okay. yeah. When it was being established... Um, Basically, you know, McLarenville, Barossa, all of South Australia would have been there for a long time. Um, All the places in Victoria would have been there for a long time. A lot of of the industry in Australia was established in the 18th and 19th century. So, um, you know, there's there's still a lot of 19th century vines around in Australia, um, especially in South Australia. In Margaret River, there was no such thing as a vine. There were a couple... Um, there, were, there were a few European families that had come over there and, and settled in north of there and sort of brought some grapes with them and planted vines. But the main industry was up in the Swan River Valley up by Perth. So this is far over Western Australia on the, on the Indian Ocean coast. Um, this is three hours south of Perth. And it was basically a surfing destination. Um, there was a plant biologist who contradicted... Do you know Harold Olmo? Do you remember the name Harold Olmo? I don't. He was a very noted UC Davis viticulturist. Maynard Amarine was another yeah, one. exactly. Right. He was the same... Those yeah, kind of... Same vintage. Nerdy, yeah. brilliant so scientist. In the, in the 50s, they brought him over to Western Australia and they said, what can we do over here? How can you help us figure out what to do over here? And he, he went over there for for about nine months and studied everything. And he said, it's too rainy down here in Margaret River, but you could plant a lot of stuff down by Albany in, in the great southern area. So this other guy, John Gladstones, he said, no, I know this area over here pretty well. This is probably the best place in Australia to grow grapes. People should look at this. There are a bunch of doctors from Perth. They came down, they planted vines. And so those are the vines that are now making some of these amazing Cabernets and Chardonnays. But I'm really interested in the Cabernets from down and this. This was all happening about 50 years about ago? About 1968. That was the yeah. setup. Yep, 1967, And unlike a lot of the wine areas, which I said was Shiraz, they put Cabernet in there. These guys kind of deduced that Cabernet would, would fare well better? The people who were interested in planting, you know, the Tom Cullity, who was the guy who had the most success at first, um, he had gone to Schloss Johannesburg and he'd gone to Mouton Rothschild in 1959, tasted out a barrel and said, these are the kinds of wines I want to make. Well, he, and, he had a style and a vision he yeah. wanted to pursue. And so he planted Riesling and Cabernet. And a lot of people down there were planting Riesling and Cabernet. Then they started planting Chardonnay. So, so I, I'm sure everyone who listens to this show has had many Cabernets. And, you know, anything from Bordeaux blends to unctuous Cali cults, mm-hmm. you know, to reasonably priced cabs and they all vary what's the characteristics completely of, different of the, so describe what, you, what you're and it's also completely different from what <clears throat> people think of as australian wine because these are skinny wines you know if it, it's compared to big rich fat shiraz there's a big movement for restraint does yeah. it fall under that yeah they can't do anything but restraint okay they tried in the 90s they tried to do big wines and didn't work okay so they've got a lot of wind off the ocean they're two miles from the ocean. These are, if you like think Sonoma about Sonoma Coast. Yeah, well, but Sam, if you think about it, who grows? Ca- there's one guy who grows Cabernet on the Sonoma Coast, and I, I'm not even sure who that there's, is. There's there's nobody that I've seen that grows Cabernet. There's not a community of Cabernet growers two miles from any ocean. True. That I can think of. True. 
Um, so they compare themselves to Bordeaux because Bordeaux has a similar situation where um, they've got a forest and they've got vines on the on the lee side of the forest, and you know, so they're they're sort of a coastal region, but they're right on. They've got a forest, but the forest is two miles wide, and then they've got vines, and so it, there's tons of wind. There's a lot of winter rain. They don't need to irrigate, and they make these really beautiful red currant flavored, delicate tannin wines. So you know, when when so we think about dark. Fruits, dark brooding current yeah red is current more of the is more classical so have, right and a thinner not in a negative not that unctuous mouthfeel and all that yeah stuff. no they're, and they're beautiful and they last for a long time they they age they're made well they age really really well give me a couple of wineries or makers well lewin is very famous spell l-e-e-u-w-i-n okay. lewin estate makes lewin. an artist series cabernet that ages beautifully um Vas Felix is the first one to plant it, and they make a very beautiful... Spell? V-A-S-S-E. Felix. Like, Vas Felix. Yeah. Two words. Yep. Okay. And um, Moss Wood is one of the classics. Two words or one? Two words. Moss Wood. Cullens is one of the best, produ- best growers there. They were also one of the original people to plant. They grow all their, all their vineyards dynamically, and they're, they make all their wines naturally, and they're doing a new Cabernet... In Amphora, that's incredible. Wow. Um, there's a guy. Amphora is the clay, yeah. you know, old ancient pot. Exactly. Yeah. There's a guy there. I'll mention one other guy. He's at Cloudburst. He's got, he's a maniac. Um, he's <laughs> from New you York. Have to be. He grew up in Merrick. Um, he, Long Island boy. Yeah. He got into forestry and he owns some forest up in New Hampshire. And then he bought, I think it's 100 acres right on the coast. Um, I think right I read about him. And he's got he's actually selling a lot of his wine here in New York. It's at That's 11 what Madison. I read. He's come to it's New at, York yeah. personally. Yeah, because no one else will sell it for that, him. That I yeah. did read about him. Now his stuff is good? His stuff is really good. Okay. His, his, so Chardonnay, all that. his Chardonnay is awesome. I thought it was more of a gimmick. Like here's a guy who had some money, went to Australia. He's coming here to sell it, but he's making good wine. I thought it was a gimmick at first when I heard about it. When I went to visit him, I didn't think it was a gimmick anymore. So that's Cloudburst. Yeah. All right. So that's, I want to keep moving because I want to cover a lot of stuff. Let's cover one or two other things. So what we're talking about, we're talking to Josh Green, publisher and editor of uh, Wine and Spirits magazine. We're talking about 2017 wine regions that really have come into their own this year and, you know, will be around. So we talked about Cabernet Sauvignon from the Margaret River of Australia. We talked about Portuguese wines. I think and there's so what I wanna what I wanna bring up still in Australia Go ahead. is Assertico from Clara Valley. Now is Assertico the Greek <laughs> is that yes. a white wine or a it's red? It's a white wine. We're gonna go from reds to whites. Um, Wait, so before we leave Australia, we're drinking a white Greek grape from Australia. That's right. All right, I'm getting up to get some. I'm just gonna rinse your glass. That's okay. Josh, I want you to talk quickly about um, English sparklers and grower champagne and okay. then you know I have a whole list of other things so what we have in front of us is a Certico and I'm going to let you take it from here a Certico I know is a Greek grape Greek grape grows on Santorini right. which is a very mm. austere island um, climate for you know volcanic soils um, this is grown in a cooler region of South Australia, and it's part of a movement. Jim Barry brought these 
cuttings Jim in. Jim Barry, the famous Jim Australian Barry, the, wine, the wine producer in Clare, brought, he got really turned on to Assyrtico in Greece, and he thought, it might be interesting to try it in Clare Valley. So he brought, he brought the cuttings in, caught them through qu- quarantine, planted this. I think it's awesome wine. Um, we have a woman on our staff, Tara Thomas, who's been with the magazine for 20 years this year. She's the greatest authority on Assyrtico that I know. And so we got her to taste this. Um, it's, you don't see a Certigo really anywhere but in Greece. And so this is really interesting because there's a whole movement in South Australia around the topic we were talking about before, sustainability, fires. You know, they've had a lot of fires in Australia. Um, there are people in McLaren Vale that are planting Nerodavola, that are planting <laughs> um, Gar- Graciano, they're planting all these Mediterranean grapes to survive climate change. And this is one of those grapes that people are planting to survive climate change. So there's limited, uh, you know, acreage to this. There's none of this. There's this none. Like, yeah. So it's got great acidity. Mm-hmm. I think it's delicious. It is a delicious wine. That's a, it's, it, the, it's got a great mouthfeel. And it tastes a little bit like a Santorini. It tastes like an Acertico, certainly. Um, yeah. and, and well, give me to me that's a great success. What are the key descriptors of an acerticum? Fierce acidity, just like you know, I got that right yeah. away. And you know, salty. There's a saltiness a to salinity. it. Salinity. And you know, everyone says that the saltiness comes from this, the volcanic soils and the and the 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 grapes on Santorini get most of their moisture from the sea air because it never rains. Right. So there, people assume that the that the saltiness comes from that, but the, this is salty. Right. It is. Yeah. It has. Which would make it a great pairing for shellfish, oysters, Delicious, yeah. clams. And again, fish. when you think about Australian wine, is this what you think about? No. <laughs> no. But I mean, Sam, that's why I brought this, because this I is don't like think such a conflict I, with, I with people's I asked you my email, of, you know, yeah. what are you thinking of bringing? I'm not sure if you put this in the email. Um, I think it would be fair to say, and either confirm or deny this for me, that I think in 2017 there was some pretty good recognition to Greek wines. Very much I so. I think Acertico and some of the other wines have come into their own. They've become Psalm favorites, you know, good values and all of that. So this is truly... So the make... It's Acertico is the grape. Who's the maker? Jim Barry. It, it is Jim Barry, who's, yeah. you know, a legendary... Yeah, so you point out an interesting... You make an interesting point, Sam, because for so many years in the New World, French grapes, classical French grapes, Cabernet, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, were always people's goals. And now so many people are playing with grapes that are appropriate to their climate and soils rather than just saying, oh, I love Cabernet from Bordeaux. I want to grow my own Cabernet in California. I I agree. So people in California are doing this. People in Australia are doing this. People in desert climates are saying, hey, we need desert grapes. And this is a desert grape. And it shows really it's, beautifully. It's delicious. Yeah. And I know I'll keep repeating myself, but I'll post the wines on our social media. All right. Let's take a few minutes. Let's talk about two other wines that were interesting for this year. I think one of them is going to be a surprise to most people. And the other, I think I've championed for the whole year. One is sparkling wine, but from England. And the other is champagne, but grower champagne. So let's do the English one second. Grower champagne is champagne. Champagne's only from the champagne region. Tell me quickly what a grower champagne is. A grower champagne is an outcome. I mean, basically, they've, they've been around forever. Right. Because people in Paris or people in other parts of France would drive to Champagne, go to a little cave, 
pick up their friend's wine and take it home. So um, someone who had their own estate made their own wines and didn't sell them to one of the big houses. Um, the reason that grower champagnes have become much more part of the market is that as the climate has become more favorable in this region, the growers can more readily ripen their grapes. They don't need to use as much dosage to alleviate the... Dosage being added dosage sugar. Dosage being added sweetness to the sweetness, wine. Right. Yeah, I mean, usually it's like grape, grape must or whatever. Right. Um, so um, what they can do is they they don't have to they don't have to feel like their wine is not such not inferior and needs to be blended away but they can present their wine consistently and make a living at it so so as for, an estate for, grown yeah, so about 20 years this has been going on people have made made their brands known as growers and as they've made their brands known as growers and as they've been able to supply the market consistently a lot of Retailers, a lot of sommeliers have said, oh, these are really interesting wines. They're more terroir-driven, in a sense, because many of them have individual vineyards that they're right. using, and they don't have, they're not blending, they're blending from one village, or they're blending from one, one particular vineyard. Right, versus a famous big house, mm -hmm. uh, champagne house, that's doing a house style that's consistent. And what's interesting is that, that the houses have reacted to the changes in climate in a similar way because they can now put out wines that, like, you know, if you look at what Rotor is doing with their right. Philippe Stark wine, I don't know if you've seen that, yes. where they make a wine from one village, Cumier, from three grapes co-fermented together so that they've, they've done a selection from that village in the same way that a grower would, and they are a huge grower. Right. Interesting project. Yeah. So there, so there, there are a lot of there are a lot of changes in Champagne, and one of the changes is that growers are more s stable as a as an entity. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we had somebody that you are involved with, and that was Peter Liam. Yeah. He did a show on Champagne promoting his book, and if anyone, Josh and I don't have the time to go into, but if you really want to get into Champagne. The history, the region, growers, the terroir, the transformation in the terroir, really the theme. You know, you should pick up Peter's book and listen to the show. All right, so that's Grower Champagne. You can also go on to his website, ChampagneGuide.net. Right. Yeah. right. Um, you brought up English sparklers. I've been reading about sparkling wine from England for years. I think it's because you brought it up. It's probably come into its own this year. How did this start? I mean, why in England did somebody decide to plant? Tell me what the grape is. Tell me when it started. Is there a lot of it? Any good? There was a lot of, there were a lot of vineyards in England during Roman times. Okay. Um, and the climate wasn't so great through the Middle Ages, and um, the climate hadn't been so great for a while. But again, the same things that are happening in Champagne are happening across the Channel in the same a lot of the same land that makes Champagne interesting for sparkling wine is the same limestone that comes up on the other side of the channel. The terroir the, is similar. Yeah. So people thought about this, scratched their heads, they started planting in, in this area, I think in the 80s and 90s. Um, so it's new. It's pretty new. But what's really new is that you know we never would see these here in the States. They were, they were getting a name, and, and, and there are people with 
you know, Steven Spurrier is making champagne there. He's a he's the guy who did the French, you know, the the competition between yes. um, in, between the Cal- California and, and Bordeaux, right. the '76 challenge. Yes, that was um, him. And he's he's planted a vineyard. Um, Christian Seely has you know who who runs um, Axa Millicime with right. all of the Bordeaux and, and Noval and Porto. He's planted a vineyard in his own vineyard in in England. There are a lot of people in the industry who have gotten into the area, and it's so there's a trend to it. There's a trend to it. There's a what lot about of, the product? What Champagne grapes, they usually vinify Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. What are they doing there? Same? A lot of it's champagne, a lot of it's champagne grapes. A lot of it's Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Okay. Um, and a lot of it's champagne method. Um, and the wines don't necessarily have the depth. I mean, we, we for the first time got 21, I think it was 21 of these in um, for our tastings this year. <laughs> That's a lot. Which is, yeah, because in the past you'd see maybe Ridgeview... You'd, you'd see a couple producers in the States, but they, they'd be at one restaurant and, not, and nowhere else and nobody would, would be looking at it. And now it's beginning to get, get attention and un, there's, a, there's sort of a, a critical mass of them in the market. Um, but we had this one wine, Digby Fine English Leander Pink. Was that the Oh Wow English sparkler? It was really good. Okay. And it was, it was a funny, um, it's Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and Meunier um, from the north and south downs of Kent, Sussex, and Hampshire. So it's it's um it's just this really pretty wine. It did, it wasn't like a, it wasn't as ambitious as some of the other wines, but it was. I often find that many people, especially in new regions, have all these ambitions and they they load their wines up with all these ambitions. And when you taste them, they're not so interesting. Right. And when people just say, "Oh, I want to make a fun wine," like this was a really fun wine, and it was made for a rugby club. Right. It was delicious. They have the right vision for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what I'm kind of picking up is, you know, life is short. You only have so many hours on this planet, so you can only drink so much wine. Um, I would guess maybe go to the grower or the regular champagne. But if you're willing to venture out, try something different. Mm-hmm. This is definitely a wine and a category, English sparklers, that, you know, the theme of what we're talking about emerged in 2017. So keep a lookout and taste it. You know, it'll be cool. All right. So those are some of the regions and wines that um, stood out this year um, that Josh noted. Um, I wanted to get your take on this because unsolicited, you brought the words up a few times. I wouldn't say natural, organic, and biodynamic wine is a trend anymore. I mean, Not you, a trend. You, you and I know guys have been doing it for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. but there's this whole movement that went from trend to sort of accept, acceptance. Um, I mean, here in Brooklyn, there was the Raw Wine Fair this year. Which I, was I was there. Jammed. I mean, it was Brooklyn's ground jammed. zero yeah. for it was jammed with the industry, with people, and with, so I, I, you know, you're an industry professional. Um, not a sommelier, not a restaurant owner, not a winery. You're a guy who observes this. I want to get your take on where you think natural wines are now. Well, I, I'm gonna, if I have a second to talk about this, I'm going to take a step back. Okay. And um, I was at, at the end of my road in Massachusetts where I live. There's a Berkshire Organics market that is basically my market because it's the closest thing for me for food. And it's also got really great vegetables and fruits. So I was there. Better than a Trader Joe's. Yeah. I was there. I mean, 
I had a girlfriend once who went crazy because I was she didn't like the fact that I would check different fruit out and figure out and you said just pick it up and buy it <laughs> so I was checking out different oranges different apples and the owner of the store came over to me and he said gee it's really interesting to see someone who's so careful about what food they put into their body so we got into this conversation we talked about natural wine we talked about I mean he sells wine we talked about natural wine and I am really careful about what I want to ingest. So it's important to me that people grow their grapes without chemicals. It's important to me that people focus attention on their vines as plants, not as machines. Um, on the other hand, there's this whole trend for orange wine. People go in and order an orange wine now. Um, Which is a white wine where they leave it on the, on the skins, skins a little yep. longer, and it gets that orange color. Yeah. And, Some and, of and which most, can be delicious, right. many of which can all taste the same. Right. Um, and I think that the danger with this trend for natural wine that has sort of gone beyond being a trend is that the wines tend to taste like natural wines rather than like where they're from because they tend to taste more like the process of natural wine making than... So terroir and place is important to what a wine tastes like. It's what makes it interesting to me. And you're saying that natural wines are somewhat void of that? Not all. Some, some, some. Some, if they're properly grown, properly made, carefully made. But that's a fair knock on natural wines. That well, I think that it's a fair knock on any wine. Right. I mean, there's natural there's wines tons are subjected of, to the same there's criticism. There's tons of commercial wine that tastes like nothing about where it's from. Right. <laughs> Probably more than natural right. wine. Yeah. So it's it's more that people shouldn't believe that just because it's a natural wine, it, it tastes like its place. Right. It may taste like all of the microorganisms in its place, but that doesn't necessarily tell you much. Right. Um, so I think when you go out and drink natural wines, like anything else, you should understand what you're getting into. And I think that if you choose the right place, I mean, there's several places in New York that promote natural wines. And I would name two. Um, well, I would I would name Rouge Tomat when Pascaline, Pascaline was, there, was there, but she's not there anymore. And I haven't I think really, her legacy lives on. I'm sure on. her le legacy lives on. I, I just haven't but experienced she was it myself a since she left. Yeah, but Racine's is a place that care that curates. Pascaline is at Racine's now. Yeah, yeah, and it and but they you know um, Arnaud there curates his natural wine list right. very carefully. You order a wine there, you're going to get a delicious wine. Right. Um, there's some other bars that if you order a natural wine in, it's sort of, you, it's hit and miss. So, so it really, if, I think if, you, if you're careful about where you order the wine, it's... it's so like anything, I mm -hmm. mean, people curate, some people curate the list better than others yeah. or more committed, you know. So let the experts sort it out for you. I think that same principle would apply for a good wine store. Absolutely. If you know it's a good store and the owner's knowledgeable and you leave it to him and you say, listen, I want to try some natural wines, I think they could steer you to different regions and all mm -hmm. of that. Um, so I think natural wines are here to stay. I think, you know, we're, we're in Brooklyn, and like you said, the Royal Wine Fair was here. It moved to L.A. afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and it was really successful. It was very successful. Um, I attended, and I think there were over 150 uh, wine producers that were mm -hmm. here from all over the world. Um, was wine consumption up last year? Wine consumption in the States is growing. It is. And it's... Um, it's growing in a lot of funky, strange ways. A lot of, you know, I mean... What do you mean by that? Rosé. Oh, certain things are yeah, leading I mean, the charge. I mean, or, or just 
leading different charges. You know, they're 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 ten different charges. So you know, so you says, mentioned too, rosé, muscat. Yeah, but boy, those, are, those are those are not so new. They've been around for no, a while. No, 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 yeah. no. But I think mm-hmm. people are drinking, talking about, and buying more rosé than they did in the past. The mm-hmm. new the new categories. In term, I mean, rosé has been around for years, but as a as a growth category, rosé is a new category. Um, Musc- Muscato has been around for years, but as a growth category, it's a new category for the last three or four years. It's in a lot of rap songs. Red, Muscato. yeah, red sweet wine is a new category that's been around for maybe two or three years. I mean, the prisoner is is like the leader. So of I that. always wrestle with what a red sweet wine is. So the prisoner, which is a blend of different grapes, is in that category. Yeah. Give me a couple of other examples of what you define as red sweet wine. Apothic. Um, Apothic, which is very popular. Yeah. Reasonably um, priced. Yeah. I mean, there there are a bunch of them. I don't so I don't follow that category. It's a little sweeter. There's more there's residual, residual sugar. sugar. There's residual sugar. Okay, yeah. and it's less. There's less aggressive tannin. It's it's that not was a dry always wine. popular yeah. in the states, right? Well, it wasn't intentional with mass now consumers. It's in, now I it's mean. In, now it's really intentional. Yeah. yeah. What so? Is there anything like that in white wines? Like was the buttery Chardonnay the buttery sweet Chardonnay was definitely was that the same, flip side yeah. of all of that? Yeah, and I think that as people moved from as people moved from buttery sweet Chardonnay to Merlot in the '90s, and there was the Mer- there was the Merlot craze, and then right. they moved to Pinot Noir, and then Pinot Noir, came. yeah, Pinot Noir got bulked up to to feed people's specific taste. They wanted to drink Pinot Noir, so people put Syrah on it um, because they had a lot of Syrah, and they want and and consumers wanted richer wines, so they're buying Pinot Noir with 25% Syrah, on it. and then it went the other way, Jasmine Hirsch and Raj Parr kind of put an organization together of restrained pinots. Yeah, but I'm not sure how much impact that's had in the general population of wine drinkers. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think those people always existed. I think that's existed. an accurate statement. Those right. people always existed. Right. And, and, it didn't and they were change always, the world. They, they were always looking for wines like that, and they're still looking for wines like that. It didn't change the world. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, we have about 10 minutes left. I wanted to cover well, we a few. Should, we should drink our rosé. Okay. Where is it? It's in the fridge. Okay. Um, before we taste that wine, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking to Josh Green from Wine and Spirits Magazine. We'll be right back. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. The following program has been brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 Potato Chips dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate. An incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 Potato Chips believes comfort food should be just that. Know where your food comes from. 
For more information, visit rt11.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Josh Green, publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. We're looking back at 2017. During the break, Josh popped a grower champagne. Grower champagne, Eric Rodez. Spell? R-O-D-E-Z. And it is actually pronounced Rodez rather than Rodé. Okay. Um, and this is his rosé from Ambonay, the town of Ambonay. Beautiful which is color. A Grand Cru. And it's a beautiful color because he makes it in the traditional way of letting the grapes sit on their skins for a little while, letting the Pinot. So 40% of this is Pinot that's been on its skins. Josh, is this an orange wine of champagne? It is, in a sense. Okay. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, for me, the best rosés are made this way. There, there are a lot of rosés in champagne that are made with an addition of red wine to give it color. This is made with the skins of the grapes. It's a beautiful color. The nose, it's not that like bready brioche as other champagnes. It's, it's a little lighter on the nose. Would you agree? Um, I think it's a really elegant wine. It's, it's, yeah. It has an elegant nose. Give me some um, palate descriptors. Well, I get a lot of fres- I get wild strawberry on it. Mm. But you know, for me, for me, what I don't think mm. about this as fruity. I think about it as um, it's got. I think about it structurally more than fruity, and it has this kind of very intense mineral structure that just makes my mouth salivate. It makes yeah. me. It makes me want food. It makes me want an oyster. It makes me want um, shellfish. It just. It. This wine makes me hungry. So. What we've been telling people all year long is champagne is not a celebratory wine. It's not something you open every now and then. It's a great food pairing wine. It pairs well with a lot of foods, different champagnes, and I think you eloquently stated this particular one, because of its style, would pair well you know, with the foods that you mentioned. A lot of people have come in and said champagne pairs well with fried foods, fried chicken, Things like that. Over potato chips. Potato <laughs> chips, which is a fried food and all of that. Um, so we'll post this um, on our website. And this is an example of the grower champagnes we're yeah. talking about. So just really quickly, this is his least expensive wine that we recommended. We recommended seven of his wines. It's got 95 points in the magazine. And, what's and the, I gave it 95 points in it, and it's $68. So for $68, a grower you're getting a grower champagne a rosé. A rosé, no, no which yeah. mm-hmm. if you look at, you know, Dom Perignon and Dom Perignon rosé, you know, it's 100 bucks more. Um, so this is an incredible value yep. for the quality. And again, an organic and biodynamic grower. Really great, good guy. Great gift. Yeah. Great wine to pull out at a party. Um, great food wine. So we'll post this. Um, all right, a couple things, and then we got to wrap up. Mm-hmm. You do a thing every year. You select the top 100 wineries. You don't really select the wine, like Wine Spectator. I know it's a dirty word. Selects wines. <laughs> you look deeper into the wineries, and I think you look more at their body of work exactly. than a particular wine. You, We talked about it earlier. You stage an event where you have the top wineries that you selected poor wines, and you know people can buy tickets and come. It happens in San Francisco. Do you ever do it in New York? We haven't done it in New York. We've been talking about doing it in New okay, York. Okay, so but we haven't. It, it's it's become such an annual event in San Francisco that we prefer not to break that. Right. Yeah. There's a tradition there. So tell me quickly. Don't spend too much time on it. Tell me quickly. You select a hundred wineries. 
from around the world. From around the world, not just U.S. Mm -hmm. There has to be some common threads or trends or interesting things that came about that. We're talking about 2017, you know, looking back to the past year. What what did you see there? Were there any, you know, interesting patterns or trends? One of the patterns was this um, emergence of Oregon as a major force, you know, I mean, we had a lot of Oregon wines, we had a lot of Oregon wines that were kind of the um, the folks who had come out of out of Evening Lands, um, and Evening Lands was there as well. Um, we had, we saw a lot of, um, I'm trying to think of what trends we would see in it. It really isn't about trends so much as... Well, a trend is one word, but yeah. I, I think, you know, Oregon represented this past year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, obviously the quality... And they're, always, they're always represented, but they're, the style of wines that were there were... From pretty, small to large yeah. winery, like a Ken... Well, Walter Scott. Walter Scott. Someone Ken like Palo, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To... Making who, awesome wines. Yeah. Yeah. To a... What else did you... Um, a lot of the a lot of the California wines that we present at the top 100 tend to be more of the elegant style of wines that are coming out of California. And I think that we see more of that now than we used to. So um, you see a lot of people making wines that are fresher um, and... If you have if you have Cabernet, you know Inglenook was there, um, and that was the first time Inglenook has ever been there. Is that um, Coppola? That's Coppola. Okay, yep. and he's he's in, you know I mean the the Cabernets from from um, from Napa that we have there are tend to be really the fresher, brighter, richer style of Cabernets, not the bigger, richer, fatter style of Cabernets. Now years past, was that what was represented? Because that's what the market was interested in. I think we've always you been. Were always I think a cheerleader. For, I think we've been representing okay. them for a while, but I think that, that they're more was popular. Was the answer I was hoping for? I think they're more popular now than they used right. to be. There's more yeah. of a market now. Yeah. So Oregon wines, restrained California cabernets, mm -hmm. in a good way. And give me one more. One more. Um, what was something new at the top 100 this year? Um, Any region or grape? Not necessarily. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm All not... All right, so th that's yeah. fine. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, and then we're going to wrap up the show, because believe it or not, it's been an hour, Josh. Um, just quickly, I asked this to different guests, and we did an award show last week, and Patrick Cappiello actually won the award for Best Rant, and the rant was on millennials. How have millennials changed or are changing the wine business, the wine market, consumption, which you've been in for a long time and know better than any. What are you feeling with that? And you got to answer this in a minute. Well, I think that they're changing the restaurant market a lot. Um, different this, diners. Different kinds of diners. They're, right. they're the wealthy millennials who are spending a lot of money for experiences. And, um, they're all, and then they're the millennials who are buying fast casual food and the middle of the restaurant business is sort of getting eaten away in San Francisco where where Which millennials is the middle are, is fast casual 
Well, no, the middle is not the fast casual is the bottom end. The bottom end, right? Of the fine dining. I got you. The middle is is millennials are going for the fast casual for the fast casual as well as for the high end. They're not eating in the middle or the high high end that much. Well, I think the rich ones are. The rich ones are eating the high end, but they're they're not eating in the middle. Right, and that's the the effect that they're having. And and so let's stay in New York. What would we use as an example for that middle restaurant example? that millennials are not necessarily... Well, thinking about Patrick Cappiello, who would have appealed to millennials, and his restaurant, Rebel, closed. Closed down. Yeah. He had a Michelin star chef, great wine list, mm-hmm. reasonable. And, and a place that should be hip and for young people. And yeah. that's why he ranted his ass off, because mm-hmm. that's a good example. Mm-hmm. So that type of place, mm-hmm. um, that was set up for that, but not appreciated by that. Yeah. Um, that could be perceived... As a wine bar restaurant, what about like a pure play restaurant? Can you think of one? A pure play restaurant that's suffering because yeah, of millennials like that's are in not that, interested in that's it? in that you know middle category. I mean, I don't, I don't really judge millennials in any way. I don't. I think that there there probably are as diverse a community of people in the millennial generation as in any other generation. Um, so I think that the trends we see are impacted by. All sorts of people, and and I mention Rebel because I think that it was targeted at a certain kind of audience. Yes, um, I agree. I, I think that's a great example. And if you're going to target millennials, I think you need to go either to a ten seat sushi right. restaurant where you're charging two hundred dollars a head for an experience, or you need to provide fast food, really good fast, organic food. That's delicious and tasty and and not expensive. Health is a big issue. Yeah. Time they don't want to you know ponder mm-hmm. over meals. Um, I think you're spot on with that. All right, Josh, we can go on forever, and that's why I invited you back. And I'm pretty sure this time next year you'll be in that same seat. So thank you for coming in. Thank you, Sam. Um, thank you to Josh Green, publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. Go out and get the current issue. Um, I'll give you some info on that in a second. If you have a question, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation, where we post a lot of that stuff. I didn't subject Josh to the wine list because we did that on his last visit. And instead of our weekly wine sip, which we, we usually taste one wine, Josh and I tasted about five wines. So I will post the wines that we tasted um, and maybe even take a few pictures so that you can go out. We tasted some interesting wines from Portugal. We tasted a Greek grape from Australia and a grower champagne. So those are some interesting wines. Um, you could follow the show on Instagram at SBenRuby. You could follow us at Twitter at BenRuby. Um, Josh, let's talk about where people can get more information about what you do every day, which is Wine and Spirits magazine. If you have a very long address, you have to say it slowly. It's wineandspiritsmagazine.com. So and the and is spelled the out. The and is spelled out. The magazine is Not all that spelled hard. out. Yeah. Okay. So wine and spirits wine and spirits. Magazine.com. Magazine.com. And it's a pretty rich site. News, wines, all the stuff that we talked about, the top 100 wines, restaurant polls, all that stuff is in there. Um, as well as all of our recommendations since all 2000. All recommendations. Yeah. And the current issue is on the newsstand yes, right now. And the cover story is? Is the California fires. That's right. Yeah. 
which we talked David about. David Darlington, it's actually on our website right now as well. Um, so if you want to read it on the website, David Darlington's story went up today. Okay. All right, so go out and buy that or certainly go on the website. I want to thank our guest, Josh Green, publisher and editor of Wine and Spirits magazine. Thank you, as always, to our engineer, Vitor, who's pretty happy because he got to taste about four or five wines, too. Um, and, of course, everyone at the Heritage Radio Network, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.